You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Stay tuned at the end of this episode for a trailer from Edgeworks Nebula's newest show, You Have My Sword. Host Christy Pride does her own deep dive of all things Tolkien from Lord of the Rings to the Silmarillion. The show is available wherever you listen to podcasts with a new episode every Tuesday. Hello, and welcome to Settle the Stars, episode 14, The Moons of Saturn. Hey folks, this is Alexander Wynn. This week, we continue our exploration of Saturn, but this time, we're visiting the suburbs, hopping between several of the larger moons and learning all about the major satellites discovered in orbit so far. It's easy for the moons to be overshadowed by the dazzling ring display, but today we'll devote a full episode to revealing some of their unique characteristics and scientists' stumping quirks. The moons of Saturn aren't quite as visible as Jupiter's Galilean moons, but they didn't escape notice for much longer than them. Titan, the largest, was discovered by Christian Huygens in 1655, and Giovanni Domenico Cassini followed by adding Tethys, Dione, Rhea, and Iapetus between 1671 and 1684, which he identified as a group by the name Sidera Lodocea, or Louisian Stars, in honor of his patron, the French king Louis XIV. William Herschel discovered Enceladus in 1789, and Hyperion joined the group in 1848 thanks to W.C. Bond, G.P. Bond, and William Lassell. Around this time, John Herschel proposed the modern naming convention for the moons, suggesting that they be named after mythological characters associated with the Roman god Saturn and his counterpart, the Greek Titan Cronus. The moons discovered at the time were assigned names of brothers and sisters of Cronus, Titans, Titanesses, and various giants. As more moons were added in the following decades, they ran out of mythological siblings, and the name pool was expanded to include other Greek and Roman mythological figures, with all irregular moons, except Phoebe, receiving a title from Inuit and Gallic gods, or Norse ice giants. By the time the Voyager spacecraft finished their survey of the area in 1981, the total number of known moons had grown to 17. The Cassini mission added even more after 2004, including a number of moons within the ring system of Saturn, and some evidence that some were still hiding among the rings. More recently, in 2014, it was reported that a new moon was beginning in the A-ring, a test of scientists' understandings of the Roche limit principles we discussed in the previous episode. The outer moons of Saturn, which lie much farther away, were more difficult to uncover. In the early 2000s, the long-exposure photographic plates had been replaced with digital charge-coupled devices that could discern more detail to identify the small discrepancies that reveal new moons. Since the new technique was accepted, some three dozen additional irregular moons have been discovered, and the moon-finding powerhouse team of scientists at the Mauna Kea Observatory responsible for identifying most of Jupiter's moons added 12 more to Saturn. As more were discovered throughout the decade, in 2019, Saturn surpassed Jupiter as the most moon-laden planet in our solar system that we know of. 
The total count now stands at 82 confirmed moons outside the ring systems, seven of which have collapsed into what we would recognize as more or less moon-shaped or ellipsoidal to astronomers. Today we'll bounce around between those moons and find out a bit more about what makes them unique and why some of them have exploration-minded scientists so excited. Beginning our journey from the outer edge of the shining inner rings that we explored in the previous episode, this time we'll move outward to survey the moons in order. Toward the outer edge of the A-ring, you'll recall two gaps. If we're moving away from the planet, we'll encounter the ink gap, occupied by the innermost of Saturn's moons, Pan. It is known as a shepherd satellite due to its activity in maintaining the ring structure and keeping the gap open. Farther out, we see the Keeler Gap, again toward the edge of the ring, occupied by tiny Daphnis at only seven kilometers wide. And as we reach the nice tidy edge of the A-ring, we find the moon Atlas, slightly larger than the others at 37 kilometers across. Atlas is named for the Titan who held the sky above the Earth, in reference to the way the moon holds its rings on its shoulders, and it was originally thought that Atlas maintains the boundary of the A-ring. More recent data shows that the ring is actually maintained by an orbital resonance with larger moons farther out. You'll remember from last week the faint F-ring, patrolled on the inside of the ring by the elongated Prometheus, which resembles a flattened football about 136 kilometers long. Prometheus shepherds the F-ring, causing distortions and wave patterns as it moves along, skimming material from the ring. Prometheus probably created the F-ring in a collision with oblong 30-kilometer-wide Pandora, which travels along the outer edge of the F-ring in an orbit that can get quite close. Moving away from Saturn from here, we enter the space of the outer rings, faint collections of material that don't photograph as well as the flashy inner rings. The first is the Janus Epimethus ring, named for the two small moons that occupy it. Originally, the two had been observed as the same moon, eventually being recognized as separate objects in 1966. These are the moons that maintain the border of the A-ring through orbital resonance, but share the far more impressive distinction of being the only known moons in the solar system to share a unique orbital dance. In their arrangement, each moon travels around Saturn in the same orbital plane, one on a slightly inner track and one on a slightly outer track. As the inner moon catches up to the outer moon, they pull towards each other, and the momentum of the faster moon is transferred to the other, effectively causing the two moons to swap orbits almost seamlessly. They continue around until the dance step is repeated, switching the moon's orbits again. No other objects are known to share this arrangement, and it makes it quite understandable how they would have been confused for a single object when they were first discovered. Just a short distance away, we'll encounter the orbit of a very interesting moon, and the first of the inner large moons that we'll encounter today, Mimas. The largest moon we've encountered yet on our trip around Saturn, Mimas is a round moon about 400 kilometers across, with a total surface area almost equal to Spain. But before any movie buffs start quoting, that's no moon, just remember, it is a moon. It just happens to look strikingly like the Death Star from Star Wars. In place of the famous sci-fi space station Superlaser, a massive crater sits in the northern hemisphere of the moon 130 kilometers across, with a mountain rising in the center six kilometers above the crater floor. Retreating to a safe distance from Minas, we'll pass by Methone. If you can't see the tiny moon, you might be able to see the arc of dust it hides out in, which was first discovered in 2006. 
Not quite a full ring, the arc is made up of materials probably ejected from the Thonae after micrometeoroid impacts. Another arc of similar origin orbits just beyond it, this one named for its own resident moon, Anthe, discovered in 2007. Both moons orbit in resonance with Mimas, the larger moon causing the smaller ones to drift back and forth in their movement around Saturn. After we pass a faint ring discovered by the Cassini mission team, which houses the small moon Palene, we'll arrive at the next pair of major moons, Enceladus and Tethys. Enceladus is a bright white globe about 500 kilometers across, making it Saturn's sixth largest moon, and about one-seventh the diameter of Earth's moon. The color is due to a coating of clean ice, which makes it one of the most reflective objects in the solar system. The surface of Enceladus is dotted with craters, but not quite distributed uniformly. There are older regions with more craters, contrasted by large, smooth plains with very few that show signs of recent tectonic activity that suggest a regular refreshing of the surface in some areas. In 2005, the Cassini spacecraft captured water-rich plumes of vapor ejecting from the south polar region by massive cryovolcanoes. Over a hundred of these geysers have been identified blasting vapor high enough to escape the moon entirely, while the rest falls back as a kind of space snow. These escaping plumes form most of the material comprising the extremely faint E-ring, outermost of Saturn's main rings. The south polar region, where the plumes originate, is a strange complex of ridges and fractures nicknamed tiger stripes that show evidence of massive changes to the overall shape of the moon, which could have completely resurfaced the area as recently as 500,000 years ago. These tectonic activities are driven by internal heat generated by tidal forces acting on Enceladus from Saturn and nearby moon Dione. More data from the Cassini flybys have led scientists to the hypothesis that Enceladus contains a dense, rocky core of partially molten magma surrounded by an icy waterlogged mantle. A large pocket of water forms a subterranean ocean about 10 kilometers deep at the south polar region, which fuels the geyser activity as it warms from tidal forces. By flying directly through the southern plumes, Cassini was able to detect salts along with molecular nitrogen, carbon dioxide, and some simple hydrocarbons such as methane, propane, acetylene, and formaldehyde. There were also traces of larger organic molecules like benzene, as well as complex macromolecules. Additional studies completed in 2019 concluded that nitrogen and oxygen-bearing amines were likely present in the plumes, which supports the existence of these biologically relevant precursors within the internal ocean. These findings are incredibly exciting to astrobiologists, who believe that the combination of a hydrothermal energy source within the planet, coupled with the availability of organic precursors within a circulating ocean, could support potentially habitable environments for microbial life. The possibility of discovering extraterrestrial microbes in such an environment has led to several proposed missions dedicated to further investigation. Continuing our outward flight path, we'll arrive at Tethys next, much larger than Enceladus with a diameter greater than a thousand kilometers. The moon is not very dense and it glows a brilliant white in the sunlight, suggesting that the entire moon is composed almost completely of water ice. It's covered in craters of varying sizes, one of which, called Odysseus, overshadows the rest. This crater is nearly 450 kilometers wide, with a crater rim rising five kilometers from the basin. By analyzing the distribution and density of craters, scientists can estimate the age of a surface. 
Portions of Tethys appear to date back to the formation of the solar system itself, with younger areas ranged from 1 to 3.76 billion years old. Another notable feature is a giant chasm carved across the surface, almost 100 kilometers wide and 3 kilometers deep. It's called the Ithaca Chasma, and was likely formed due to the expansion of the moon as the molten water mantle froze solid over time. Sharing the orbit of Tethys are two unusual moons, Telesto and Calypso. These small moons share the distinction of being Trojan moons, in that they share the same orbit of Tethys and escort the larger moon along its path, Telesto ahead and Calypso behind. Both were discovered in 1980 with a ground-based telescope, but the co-orbital Trojan relationship was not realized until closer observation in 1981. Beyond Tethys and her Trojans orbits another trio in a similar arrangement. Dione is slightly larger than Tethys, at a little over 1122 kilometers across, escorted by her own two Trojans, Helene in front and Polydeuceus behind. Dione may only be slightly larger, but she packs a big punch. Almost one-third of the mass of Dione is solid, rocky core, making this moon much more dense than the other moons of the same size. In fact, if you combined all the other known moons that are smaller than Dione, they still wouldn't weigh as much. Dione resembles Enceladus in appearance, with a brilliant white surface of ice, and also has a liquid saltwater ocean beneath the surface. Like most of Saturn's moons, Dione is tidally locked with Saturn. That means the same face is always facing toward the planet. The leading edge, or the forward edge when orbiting Saturn, is covered in craters, which is very common. Like a windshield on a car, that's where you'll find all the bugs you hit. The trailing side, however, caused some confusion when it was first imaged by Voyager in 1980. The entire side of the moon is covered by fine, wispy lines that scientists believe could be the result of large eruptions depositing material in these patterns. Cassini obtained clearer photographs of the train in 2004 and proved them all wrong. The wisps are actually enormous, bright cliffs of ice on the edges of tectonic fractures. Saturn's second largest moon approaches now, Rhea, named after the Titan Rhea, the wife of Cronus. Rhea's low density suggests the composition of about 75% ice and 25% rock. Many scientists assumed the rock would be concentrated in a solid core like similar moons, but the Cassini mission proved that the planet's composition is almost entirely homogeneous. On the surface, Rhea resembles Dione closely, with differentiated hemispheres of greater impact concentration on the leading side, with lesser on the other. Rhea even has matching ice cliffs on her trailing side, observed in 2006 by Cassini. In 2010, NASA announced the discovery of an exosphere on Rhea composed of oxygen and carbon dioxide. As with most moons with oxygen present, it's thought to be produced by the radiolysis, or splitting by radiation, of water molecules after which the lighter hydrogen is blown away, leaving the oxygen behind. The carbon dioxide has not yet been explained, but could be produced by the oxygenation of carbon-containing molecules within the ice. On a separate flyby of Cassini in 2008, it was thought that differentiated electron flow around the moon detected by the spacecraft indicated that a small ring system could exist around the moon. If true, it would be the first and only known ring system around a moon in the solar system. Upon targeted examination, however, Cassini was unable to observe any evidence of ring material, so it looks like no moons can claim any of Saturn's thunder in that respect for now. Our next stop will be Saturn's main moon event, Titan. 
head and shoulders above the rest of Saturn's moons, Titan is larger than Mercury, though only 40% its mass, and boasts the only thick atmosphere on any moon in the solar system. Turning around to check on our distance from Saturn, from Titan, the planet appears about 11 times larger than the moon in the night sky of Earth. While the thick haze surrounding the moon obscures much of the terrain, scans by Cassini in 2004 identified a relatively smooth terrain with a small number of impact craters and some high mountain ranges and possible cryovolcanoes. The thick atmosphere is nitrogen-rich, the only other atmosphere known to be so outside of Earth's. The atmosphere is actually denser than Earth's, one and a half times the surface pressure we're used to. Other components, such as methane, hydrogen, and trace amounts of other gases, with hydrocarbons and other gas compounds. The hydrocarbons are thought to be produced in Titan's upper atmosphere by radiolytic breakup of methane, producing the thick orange haze that obscures the surface. Although the moon is well sheltered by Saturn from the solar wind, even here the sun's energy should theoretically convert all the moon's methane into complex hydrocarbons within 50 million years. The fact that this hasn't happened suggests that methane is regularly replenished, possibly from a reservoir within the moon. After hypothesizing the stable liquid lakes of hydrocarbons could exist on Titan, Cassini confirmed the presence of many lakes and even larger seas in the polar regions of the moon, with a computer-estimated composition of 75% ethane, 10% methane, 7% propane, and traces of hydrogen cyanide, butane, nitrogen, and argon. But those amounts will still need to be confirmed by observation. In an otherworldly twist, some models predict a precipitation of benzene falling on the lakes like snow, gradually accumulating into sludge-like deposits that are carved out into caves and ravines by ethene rainfall. The atmosphere is believed to support large cyclones in the northern regions of the moon near the seas, but readings indicate waves in the seas are small, only about one centimeter high. In 2019, a study concluded that aerosols raining down from the atmosphere could dampen these waves and inhibit anything larger from forming. So unfortunately, we won't be surfing on methane today, but with a surface temperature around 94 Kelvin, or negative 180 degrees Celsius, that's probably for the best. If that sounds cold, which it shouldn't after the number of frozen ice worlds we visited today, you should know that those temperatures are higher than they would be without the greenhouse activity from the smog layer. Unlike Venus, which also has a thick atmosphere, Titan just doesn't receive a comparable amount of sunlight way out here, so temperatures can't reach the same insane levels they do closer in. There's also the matter of a competing anti-greenhouse effect that clouds can have, whereby sunlight is reflected by the clouds before it can warm up the surface at all. In 2005, one publication in the journal Science described Titan as, quote, complex, fluid processed, and geologically young. Aside from making a great tagline for a Tinder profile, that phrase perfectly describes a place that scientists have been clamoring to get a closer look at. In that same year, they got their chance when Titan received its first guest from humanity, the Huygens Lander Probe. The probe touched down in a region called Adiri, and during its descent recorded white icy hills with rivers stained dark by hydrocarbon rainfall and flow. The post-landing shots showed a plain dotted with smooth rocks and pebbles made of ice with possible erosion patterns suggesting fluid flowing at some point. These images made history and still hold the record as the surface images taken farthest from Earth, hopefully inspiring future explorers to continue the journey. 
We could stay here all day, but there are more moons to see. Next up on our tour is Hyperion, another of the main moons with a striking visual profile. It's oblong-shaped, like a potato, and highly porous. There are some theories as to how it came to be this way, as it seems to be a conglomeration of smaller pieces of ice and rubble. But unlike most of Saturn's moons, it doesn't reflect much light, suggesting at least some kind of dark material covering the surface. This covering likely came from nearby moon Iapetus. Also notable about Hyperion is its highly chaotic rotation, wobbling unpredictably through space as it tumbles around Saturn. Strangely, it's a natural moon, and therefore the only known regular planetary satellite in the solar system not to be completely tidally locked with its parent planet. The final of the main moon group on our tour today is Iapetus, third largest of Saturn's moons. Iapetus is about 1,500 kilometers across, with an interesting mix of bleach-white ice and dark brown coloring across the surface. The coloring is due to dark deposits believed to have been left from outside Iapetus, or possibly residue from evaporation of water ice from the surface. The covering is very thin, only about a foot deep in some areas, as shown by some impacts that have punched through the layer to the white ice underneath. The most immediately striking feature of the moon is a huge mountain ridge across the middle of it, rising 20 kilometers from the base and distorting the shape of the moon so much that it looks like the shell of a walnut. There are at least four competing theories to explain this mountain ridge, but none of them can explain why only this one equatorial band is affected. Further study will be required to test these hypotheses, but unfortunately, we have a tour to continue. The remaining moons can be subdivided into three groups, the Inuit group, the Gallic group, and the Norse group. The Inuit group is a set of five minor moons that follow similar orbits and share a spectral homogeny which supports a shared origin, possibly the breakup of a single large object. Scott Shepard's team of moon hunters in Hawaii recently identified new moons for addition to this group, for which a naming contest is underway for appropriate Inuit titles. The Gallic group consists of six moons that are also believed to be pieces from a once larger object, which could have broken up into these prograde irregular satellites. Finally, the Norse group is the largest of the three, with now over 50 members, thanks to another slam dunk from Shepard's team of astronomers in Hawaii. This grouping is actually believed to consist of several subgroups of similarly orbiting moons, with a lot of work to go in untangling the interactions and origins. Phoebe is part of this group, and the only one that does not have, and will not receive, a Norse name. And with that, we've completed our tour of the known moons of Saturn. What a journey. The complexities of the interactions and dynamics of all these objects is a fascinating example of the determination and brilliance of the scientists who devote their careers to studying them. Join me again next time as we head further out into the solar system to meet the icy giants waiting for us there. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. Settle the Stars is available on pretty much every podcasting platform, and we're also mirroring our episodes on YouTube at youtube.com slash edgeworksentertainment. And be sure to ring that bell so you know when there's a new episode. We also have a Patreon page at patreon.com slash edgeworksentertainment, where you can get early episodes and tons of other great rewards. The support of listeners like you is what makes this show possible, and I am so, so grateful to the people who have already joined. Thank you all for listening, and as always, happy terraforming. Hey 
there. Welcome to You Have My Sword, a Tolkien podcast hosted by me, Christy Pride. You Have My Sword is a comedic, historical deep dive on different topics from Tolkien's work, spanning The Hobbit, Lord of the Rings, The Silmarillion, and beyond. We'll talk about things like Numenorians, Do Men Even Deserve Rights? Tom Bombadil, The Ultimate Wife Guy, Baron and Luthien, A Better Love Story Than Twilight, and, yes, I'll tell you why the eagles couldn't fly the goddamn ring to Mordor. You can find You Have My Sword on Instagram and Twitter at YHMSpodcast, or you can visit us at YouHaveMySwordPodcast.com. I do the research, you do the listening, everybody wins. Except Sauron. Fuck that guy. Catch y'all soon, and remember, You Have My Sword. Edgeworks Nebula. As a long-time foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts.